0: Father, we thank You that You have made Yourself known in Your Son and in Your Word, and we thank You that You are constantly making Yourself known in creation. I pray that as Your Word is preached today, that You would open our eyes, that You would open our hearts to receive the abundance of what You have given to us. We know that it is more than we can fathom, but open our minds and hearts to receive it a little more deeply today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What's the greatest gift you've ever received? Right? For like a Christmas or a birthday or something like that. Maybe it was a vacation or uh, a piece of jewelry or uh, an heirloom or something like that. But, But whatever it would be, for most of us, what comes to mind when we ask that question is something special, something out of the ordinary, something that we didn't work for, didn't earn, didn't deserve, didn't even ask for. The greatest gifts are those that we usually think about like, man, these things pull us out of the mundane slog of existence where we've got to keep everything going and give us a glimpse of glory beyond that ordinary. But what if the mundane and the ordinary and the regular is also gift? What if existence itself, all the way down, goes into that category of gift? Now, a little historical thinking will get you to this conclusion. I've been doing a fair bit of genealogy work recently, and I'm not going to bore you with the details of what parts of my family are from where and what battles they fought in and all that. But what's been striking me as I've been doing this work is the giftedness of my own existence. Right? Because generation after generation after generation, there were adults who invested in kids, who became adults, who invested in kids, who became adults, who invested in kids. And those investments resounded far beyond their lifetimes all the way to me. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Absolutely staggering the scope of care and sacrifice that has happened century after century to make any of our existences with with your particular chromosomes and your particular family possible. Our existence, even without bringing God into the picture, is built on gifts given across who knows how many generations. When, When I was born, I didn't deserve or earn any of that. I was birthed from the womb of generations of sacrificial investment and care. And if that's true without bringing God into the picture, that conclusion that even existence itself is gift deepens tremendously as we do bring God into the picture. Because the biblical refrain is that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. Which means that everything that is, including us, does not have to be here. Your existence was not inevitable or required. The entire cosmos did not have to be, and yet here it is. We did not have to be, and yet here we are. All is gift, all is grace from the hand of God. Psalm 104, verse 30, the psalmist says, When you send your spirit, they, and the creation, is renewed, and you renew the face of the ground. Wherever life springs up, it is the Holy Spirit who is doing that work. It's his general work in creation. Psalm 139 uh, paints this beautiful picture uh, of this reality when it says that we were individually knit together in our mother's womb by God himself. This is true whether we accept it or not, whether we reject it or not, whether we recognize him or not. We are here today because God wants us to be here today. We're here just because he wants us to. I'm sure there's some of us in the room who need today to hear that. But even knowing that, it might be tempting to think that God made us and then dropped us off at the corner, right? Sort of the deadbeat dad who left us to fend fend for ourselves during the period when America was being formed. This was a dominant theological perspective. But nothing could be further from the truth for us or for the rest of creation. It's laid out in beautiful detail in Psalm 104, which is, I think, one of the most important passages of Scripture on creation that we almost never read. If you have your Scriptures with you, if you've got it on your phone, I encourage you to open to Psalm 104. We're going to be kind of moving around this this long Psalm, but I, I encourage you to continue meditating on it after a day because there are so many riches here. Last week, we talked about how God created the cosmos to be his temple, his home, his dwelling from Genesis 1. And, and Psalm 104 picks up on that theme, saying in verse 2 that the Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. These are clothing analogies. These are tent analogies. These are dwelling analogies that are, that are bolstering that point that Genesis 1 made, that creation is not God. But it's a dwelling place for God, a place that God has designed to dwell in as a reflection of himself. It's a place, a home that he has designed uh, to reflect his own glory. But also to be for our good and the good of the rest of creation. It is all gift for us. Listen again to Psalm 104, starting at verse 10 this time. It says, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys, or whatever Colorado animal you want, elk or deer or bear or something, quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. What's so striking about this language isn't that it says, well, God designed all this and now it's kind of working on its own. There's there's an immediacy, an intimacy to the language here. The psalmist is talking lavishly about God being involved in his creation, giving gifts to his creation through his creation. He's saying that these waters that are coming down are, are done for the sake partly of the creatures he has made, that he loves and delights in providing for their needs, not not just us as humans, but all the creatures he's made. Jesus picks up this theme uh, in the reading that we did from the Gospel in Matthew. He, He chides us for our worry because even the weakest, the most vulnerable of creation receive abundance from his hand. And if they do, what do we have to worry about? Now, as poetic As that might be. And beautiful. We need to acknowledge that it can hit our modern scientific ears a bit strangely. Because it's talking about God causing springs here. We know what causes springs. The water table reaches the surface and seeps out of the ground. Right? We know what makes it rain. The moisture content of the atmosphere grows to a degree that the particulates in the sky cannot hold it anymore as water vapor. God doesn't seem to like need to be involved in any of those things. We can track them, predict them, anticipate them with some level of accuracy. Less accuracy in Colorado, but with some <laughs> level of accuracy. But to say that science explains away this intimate language of Psalm 104 is to, is to fall prey to a reductionism. As we talked about last week in depth, how something happens and why it happens are two different questions. For example, the statement, can exists. How does this happen? How do I exist? Well, spoiler alert, if you don't know this yet and you never had this talk with your parents, but a certain sperm and a certain egg come together to form the person, right? That's the explanation. But that's not the whole explanation. That how explanation doesn't compete with the deeper why, that I exist because my parents loved each other and deeply desired a child. The great theologian Thomas Aquinas talked about this as the difference between what he called primary and secondary causes. (laughs) The primary cause of all these created realities, according to Psalm 104, is God. Now, sometimes God doesn't use a secondary cause, and we call that a miracle. But usually God does use secondary causes, like established scientific processes to accomplish his will. So yes, the specific geology of a mountain pass might cause a spring to grow up, but that doesn't mean that God was not intimately involved in that process. Honestly, when you, when you dig into any of these natural phenomena down to their most basic roots, everything goes back eventually. It's one of the four fundamental physical forces when you get to the bottom of the physics. The gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Everything that happens kind of goes back to those four. And if any of those forces were just a little bit different in strength or scope, the world as we know it would not exist. And the interesting thing is we have no idea why they are the strength and scope they are. They're constant. They don't change. And we don't know why. We just take them as assumptions. Everything that comes out of science sits on top of those as rock solid. They're just the brute facts that we assume. We did not create them, cannot explain them, cannot control them, cannot change them. They are just givens is a phrase you'll hear sometimes. But think about that word, givens. They are given by the God who gives all good gifts as a way of sustaining all those secondary causes. Because this is the picture Psalm 104 paints. The creation is this extravagant, overwhelming gift. Gift that fills needs, but also gift that brings delight. Gift that brings abundance. Abundance. Let's keep going. Verse 14 of Psalm 104. It says, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing food forth from the earth. Okay, yeah, like food's a good, a good thing, right? That brings delight. But when he's talking about food here, he's not just talking about potatoes. Apologies to everybody that likes potatoes. They're fine. They're just okay. He's not talking about that here. He's not talking about things that are just Okay bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. God is not just providing calories here. He's providing feasts. Bread is like the best thing in the universe. And if you disagree, you're just wrong, and I'm sorry. It's so good. Oil makes everything delicious, even like vegetables. And and wine, like, makes a party. Now, I know there are complications here. We're going to talk in a few weeks, uh, addiction and things like that. But, but, But wine and what it brings is meant to be a good gift. What the psalmist is saying is that God doesn't just give us enough to get by. He gives us the good stuff. Like, if you're a foodie, he gets you and he loves that you love it. That's part of why he gave it to us. It says in in verse 31 that God rejoices in his works. He delights in delighting us. He loves loving us. What, What it's saying is that God is generous beyond just what we needed. All the way back in Genesis 2, it says that God made trees that were good for food and pleasing to the eye. He could have just made them, like, edible. But they were good for food. They were beautiful to the eye. God delights in giving generously, profusely, abundantly, extravagantly to us. Which is absolutely glorious.
1: And also, if we think
0: through the implications, probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Because if everything and everyone depends on God's generosity, That means we are dependent on that generosity. And dependent is not a happy word to us. We love gifts that are luxuries, but we don't want the necessities of life to come down to gifts. We want to be able to handle that ourselves. One of the striking things about this passage, though, is that no one fends for themselves. No aspect of creation is self sustaining. Everyone and everything is dependent on something, both on God ultimately, but also on other things in creation to sustain life. Now, this was true from the beginning. This is how God made the world Genesis 1 before the fall and all the horrible things even happened. We are always dependent on things outside ourselves for life, we need food. First, plants were given to us as food and later animals as well after the flood. There was never a time when we weren't dependent on something else within creation to sustain our life here. There was never a time when we could do it all ourselves. So friends, whether you like it or not, dependency was God's purpose for you. And if you work against that grain, you are working against God himself. It's baked into how you are made. Being dependent, even needy, is not a glitch in the system or something that is to be avoided at all costs. It's part of who we are all the way down. We are creatures, not the creator. We're, we're a vapor. We're made from dust. We need food and water and air and each other. And God made it that way because it illustrates our ultimate dependence on him. We need dependence on these created things to remind us that we need the creator. Verse 27 makes this clear. It says, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Ultimately, our dependence here is simply a reflection of our dependence on the God who gives it all to us. The psalm is actually saying that the animals have some religious impulse. They're looking for the hand that will give the things. And all those gifts that fill us and sustain us can actually open us to receive his generosity. Right? We heard Paul talking about in the book of Acts. He's, he, he's preaching to a Gentile people who are unschooled in the law and the story of Israel. They don't know anything about Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. They don't know anything about that that stuff. But Paul says, but that doesn't mean that God left himself without a witness. He gave and he gave and he gave crop after crop after crop, season after season after season, year after year after year, century after century after century as a way of showing you who he is. Creation keeps on giving because he is the kind of God who keeps on giving. And maybe through those gifts, it could open us to receive the greatest gift. This is why it's such an incredible irony and so nonsensical that our heart's desire is to run from God and go on our own to take our own path. Because rejecting God is rejecting our own existence. It's rejecting our sustenance. It's like the ultimate example of biting the hand that feeds us. When we negate God, we are negating ourselves. We think we're going off and searching for the fullness of life, but we're actually cutting ourselves off from the source of all life. Because this God is generous and extravagant and abundant, and even when we reject Him, He keeps on giving. But if all this is true, and all this is, like, really real, we need to be honest and admit that it doesn't often feel like it. That often it feels like life is anything but full. That often it feels like there is so much lack. Part of it is that we're not trained to see that we think God owes us something instead of everything being given. But part of it is that that lack is also very, very real. At some point in every story, God stops giving these particular gifts. Right? right after it says in verse 28 that when you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things, the psalmist gets honest and said, says, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. The same God who is so incredibly generous withdraws his hand. The God who delights in smiling on us hides his face. Why? For humans, there's a layer of our choosing at play, right? Because we have rejected God, all of us have, we all have chosen non-existence. We have all, in a sense, placed ourselves under a curse. Death is not something God does to us because, like, he's extra mad at us. It's the logical outcome of rejecting the source of life. Ultimately, we die physically because we chose to cut ourselves off from him. But it's not clear that the rest of creation should have the same logic, right? Because they don't choose in the same way. Cacti don't rebel against God and they die. Now, and and it's not super clear that animal and plant death are simply the result of human sin, right? Before the fall, at least plants had to die in order for animals and humans to live, for food. Now, Scripture isn't as clear on animal death before the fall. It's hotly debated. We're not going to go there. But from the very beginning, the life of another living thing had to be sacrificed for us to live. In order for us to receive the gift of life, the gift of life had to be taken from whatever we and the animals were to eat. And therein lies a mystery that from the very beginning, God takes away the gift of life, the gift of existence, to give the gift of life to another. Now let me restate this because this might be a new idea for some of us to kind of picture creation this way. In the world as we know it, Right? We know now every animal depends on the death of a plant or another animal to live. Every human depends on the death of a plant or another animal to live. The gift of our life is dependent on the gift of life being rescinded from another creature. Even if it's not for direct consumption for food, right? There's a few inches of topsoil on which all life depends. And it requires decayed organic matter to make it fruitful. That's a fancy way of saying dead things. You can't grow stuff in bare rock. In this creation, we cannot live without death. We cannot receive the gift of life unless it is taken away from another. Which seems like a really bizarre way to do it. Until you take the whole story in mind. Until you consider that perhaps creation was made that way to reflect the very heart of God. Because this theme of death that happens for the sake of life, it begins in Genesis 1, but as we know the story, it it grows and climaxes and ultimately culminates in the death of God for the life of his creation. Sacrifice for the sake of others is built into, inscribed on the universe, because it is in the very heart of the God who made the universe. Friends, Jesus died so that we might live. He enters into the non-existence that we chose so that we can have life to the full, right? It talks about uh, God turning his face away. Well, the Father turns his face away from the Son so that he no longer would turn his face away from us. And for the Christian, for the one who learns to see this kind of God in the midst of his creation, right? Every meal, every circle of life documentary becomes a reminder of that fact. Every meal is an illustration of the love that lies at the heart of God. That plant, that animal, the very son of God had to die that I might live. And yes, the gift of, of, of this life is taken away. We all die. But there's a greater gift that comes in the way. Something extraordinary has now happened because even our death, the death that we freely chose, the death that we totally deserve, becomes the gateway to this greater gift. The end of our life here brings us into an everlasting life in the world to come. A new creation with new bodies and new spirits and a new world. Yes, the seed of this body dies, but the seed dies so that a glorious bloom might result. See, the logic of this creation is not obliterated. It's actually fulfilled in the new creation that is to come. God does rescind a gift only to give a greater one. God does hold back abundance, but only for the sake of refilling us with a greater abundance. God does in this life, but only so that we can have life to the full. And so that we can have the greatest gift of all. Himself. Because that is the purpose of all of this. The greatest gift, the ultimate gift, the gifts that all the gifts are building towards is not anything that God can give us. It's God himself. All these gifts of creation are warming us up for that one. The greatest gift I've ever received or ever given was a wedding ring is not about the ring it's about the one who gives the ring whatever gifts of renewal receive whatever signs of life spring up within us they're signs they're icons they're sacraments they're, they're visible pictures of invisible realities the gift that God is ultimately giving through all the other gifts is the gift of himself why Paul told those Gentiles, right? You've been receiving all these gifts. Now get ready to receive the ultimate one. It takes a lot of humility and a lot of courage to receive those big gifts. It's hard. We'd much rather give them than receive them. But may by his Holy Spirit, he do, may he do what he does with the rest of creation, that he would renew our hearts and give us courage to receive the gift of himself, to receive the love of the giver through all the gifts that he has given. Let's pray. God, we confess that we turn a blind eye towards the abundance and we do not trust that in the lack you are preparing us for greater things. It is so hard for us to see the world this way. Send upon us and in us your Holy Spirit. Renew the face of the ground of our hearts. May we, in some small way, in this day, in these moments, in this song, in, in this prayer time, in, in these responses, in this table, taste and see that you are good. Amen.